So what I love about Dr. Krister, as you will see, is that she is so patient in explaining these complex medical issues and making very vivid analogies, as you'll see in our discussion, how to think about the process of healing. So I'm super excited to welcome Dr. Jill Krista to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. <laughs> it is. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay. So the first thing I always like to get into in with uh, my guests is their background. And I guess my two-part question to you is why did you choose to go into medicine, particularly naturopathic medicine versus, you know, a conventional medical doctor or osteopathic doctor? Yeah, the naturopathic lifestyle was how I was raised. So that I think is one of those, um, you know, it's, it's an easy shoe in when you see it in real life. And then I had family members where the conventional model was not working for them. And you'll love this as an, as an allergist, <laughs> it was in the area of allergies, you know, and so food allergies, environmental allergies, things in the conventional model just weren't working. People who were sensitive to medication. Now we see, you know, a long family line of methylation issues. So that all makes sense. So yeah, things just weren't working. And so there was a, um, a, a real life example for me watching someone go out of the conventional system and getting help and getting improvement by, um, and, and you talked about on your, on your Canada podcast about Dr. Crook and his amazing book of the yeast connection. Um, that was a Bible in my house. So, and we use all the recipes still. I still make that granola in that book. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, yes. So I think watching that, um, I remember when I was deciding to go to medical school, it was kind of funny because the very family that that had gotten help by Dr. Crook and the, the other allergists that were actually paying attention to some of these bigger pictures were saying, "Why don't you go to Georgetown? They have an they have an alternative medicine course." And I thought, a four hour course that's not deep enough for me. I wanted to go all in, so I became a naturopathic doctor. Interesting. I'm just curious because you know it's regulated different ways in different states. What is the training like? I mean, do you do anatomy, histology? Do they do any type of residency? Not that that's the way it has to be, or, or is it more that, you know, you do the courses and then you work, you know, under other doctors? I'm just curious, the training. Yeah. So it's a, it's a little convoluted until all of the states get licensed. It won't be really clear, but the, the states which license naturopathic doctors require that we've gone to medical school. So we do a, a pre-science bachelor's and then we do four years. And, and when we stack up the curriculum, it's the same hours. If you were to compare, we actually have a comparative curriculum. Johns Hopkins University Medical College of Wisconsin is our most local one where I am. Uh, the hours are the same. The first two years are the same uh, clinical and basic and clinical sciences. And then the last two years on the therapeutics are going to be focusing more on natural medicine and then the combining. And I think we are really uniquely suited to know how to safely combine drugs, herbs, nutrients in a safe way because we understand the herbs uh, mechanism so well. And if you need to, can you prescribe medicine? Because I know that also yes. varies. I think because in New York, it's very strict. I, I don't even think they let naturopaths practice. No. A lot of them, right, are in Connecticut. They're over the border, and patients seek them out over there, but they yeah. can't prescribe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're trained in pharmacognosy and pharmacology and, say, you know, primary care prescribing. We're not hospital trained. We're not 
going to be, you know, managing rounds and that kind of a thing. We have admitting privileges in many of the states where we're licensed. Um, but then we just hand it over. You know, that's we I'm know sure. when to refer. Yeah. No, that happens today in regular medicine, too. Very few yeah. doctors. It's almost unheard of for somebody to be going back and forth between the hospital and their own private practice. Right. Just OB, right, two, basically. Two other, like, sort of background <laughs> personal questions. So from reading your book, you take mold illness very personally. And you mentioned it affected you and your family. Is that why you got interested in this area? Were you already a naturopath when this kind of... I was already a naturopath and I was already treating mold patients. So that's when I decided, boy, I better write a book because it got to me and I was even deep in the field. So I, when I moved to Wisconsin and started my practice, I found out by, I didn't realize, uh, but I was in Lyme country. The you know, Lyme disease is a big problem. I think Wisconsin is number three and four in the oh, country I didn't know that. Yeah. all the time. You know, it, it flips between three and four of incidence cases. So it's not just an East Coast problem, you know, and, right. and that's was a big eye opener for me. So I became an ILADS trained physician to learn which ILADS is the Lyme disease society that's a little more open to the idea that there's persistent Lyme disease and it's not being treated appropriately. And so I went and did the physician training and uh, was working with Lyme patients and the com- combination of using pharmaceuticals and herbs. And for some patients, they didn't want any of the pharmaceuticals. So I got a great chance to try just using the plants and see if that works. And indeed it does. Uh, so here I was working with these Lyme patients and, and just like in functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, when you find and treat the cause, people tend to get better. <laughs> Except I had this small group of patients that weren't getting better and they were doing 110% of the work. And, you know, our patients work so hard. They come expecting homework. They they get, they're expecting a diet change. They're expecting to have to make some environmental changes to their life, some lifestyle changes, and they're willing to do the work. And here there's this group doing all the work and they weren't getting better. And in one of those patients, they found toxic black mold when they were remodeling. And they, the remodelers estimate it was probably a 10 year exposure. And this was the guy whose gut was a mess. He had terrible ear ringing, he had pelvic pain, urinary frequency, all the kind of, I heard your interview with Dr. Dempsey and all the kind of mast cell sort of symptoms. And he was a mess. And of course, then had a cancer diagnosis. You know, what you bring out is so important. Um, here in New York, you know, it's like places you don't always think about it, but you know, here in New York, probably over a decade ago, we were hit with Sandy. And when I'm watching what's going on in Florida right now, the devastation as it's heartbreaking as it is. And I know colleagues of mine, their communities have been wiped out, but I just also keep thinking, Oh my God, the mold issue after even when they try to rebuild. Yeah. It's going to be horrific. Yeah. And people rush to rebuild, right. you know, you're better off living in studs and let everything dry out for yeah. a little while. Yeah. 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 And just, their, their lives are upended. My last yeah. background question, because then we're going to get into the, the meat and potatoes of all this. I'm curious about who was really an influential teacher to you in this mold area. Now, I also went down this rabbit hole about seven years ago. I told patients on prior podcasts uh, because I was getting so many requests about it. And I said, I don't know anything about this. This was about seven years ago. Uh, and they were patients were begging me, please help us, you know, help us find somebody. And I, I really couldn't even find anybody. And then I, I got, um, I got knowledge of that Dr. Shoemaker, who was really one of the pioneers in the field. And I did some work with him. Uh, then I was really fortunate through Jacob Teitelbaum to get to Dr. Neil Nathan, who I just think is terrific. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing work with him. 
Uh, and of course, there's Dr. Brewer, uh, mm -hmm. I think in Kansas City, who's really more, he's an infectious disease, but as he mentioned, he got into this mold thing when he was seeing a lot of chronic fatigue patients. And, and he did a, like some type of study where he found like 75% of the chronic fatigue patients have mycotoxins. Over 90%. Yeah. And I mm -hmm. think also you mentioned in your book, Paul Anderson was an influence. So just out of curiosity, are you, is it an amalgamation of all of these? Or is there one that really uh, has influenced you a lot? I would say amalgamation and also Dr. Walter Kernian and Dr. Lynn Patrick. Those are okay. environmental medicine training doctors that are naturopathic doctors. I'm not shoemaker trained because I had such great, you know, tutelage from them and Dr. Yes. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil Nathan. So, um, and Dr. Brewer's study that revolutionized how I treated mold. It wasn't right. until that study when I was reading it that all of these yes. lights went off yes. in my head yeah. of like, it's a Oh, it's nasal. You know, like that's seeding yes, the whole yes, problem. Yeah. You know, you're right. I watched his YouTube presentation. People can see it online. It really is interesting. And as I said, too, again, he's a very conventional infectious disease doctor. So yeah. for him to like cross the border is uh, a little revolutionary in its own sake. So, yeah, that's interesting. Right. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. We're going to get into it, too, because a lot of the protocols by them, like, for example, Shoemaker versus Brewer versus, you know, some of the other natural, is very different, as you know. Mm -hmm. So I, that's why I like your approach. But, okay, let's get into what is mold. You know, you explained it so clearly in your book. As I said, I, I, I read it like two or three times since you keep preparing for this interview. And I read other books by Shoemaker and other people. I, I love Dr. Neil Nathan's book, uh, toxic, um, yeah. also, which I think is really, it's really a classic, but your book not only is great for physicians to learn about this, I think, but it's also so important for them and the patients to understand what this is. So can you give us a little insight into what mold is like spores, fragments, mycotoxins? Cause I think that's what fools people. And I think the other thing, which is the biggest misconception is that you can smell mold. So yes, please explain that to everybody. Yes. Yes. So the way that mold can make you sick is with many different ways. And so that's what gets missed. Spores and spore fragments create the more allergy type symptoms. And so that's, that's basically, if you look on the CDC website, they define mold related illness as either allergies, asthma, hypersensitive pneumonitis, all the way down to aspergillus of the lungs. Right. Well, there's this whole spectrum of stuff that happens in between, you know, and that's the part that I'm trying to redefine our definition of mold related illness to include the chemicals that mold secretes when it's actively living and metabolizing. One of those we use as a, as a drug, mycophenolic acid called Celsept to prevent organ rejection after you give someone wow. a new organ. Wow. So you, people who are in a moldy environment are breathing an immune suppressant. Basically, uh, that's a great and, point. Wow. You know, yeah. that's wild, isn't it? Yes. And yeah. then there's, you know, that's actively living mold. And then when mold has, when it really likes its territory and it has competition, it will start to make a purposeful bioweapon to take out its, its competition, which the target is really other microbes. But when we look at the cellular effects, it affects our cells just the same. So many are cytotoxic, meaning cell toxic. Many are genotoxic, meaning they can affect the genes and gene replication. So we, you know, this idea that it's just allergies, you can have a perfectly normal 
mold allergy tests and still have mold related illness. Yes, I know. I think that's what, you know, you know, my, my practice is interesting because you mentioned me being an allergist. It's so funny. Sometimes I don't even relate to that anymore. My practice has changed so <laughs> dramatically. I mean, I've practiced 30 years and I did start as a very conventional allergist doing allergy injections for the last 25 years. I haven't given a, an injection for that. I do sublingual drops yeah. and obviously moved over as a lot of my listeners we know to functional medicine essentially over the last almost two decades. Uh, so yeah, I mean, classically when I would see quote a mold patient, you know, a hypersensitivity patient, they would have wheezing, sneezing, runny nose. And it really gets to my next thing that I wanted to ask you about. Cause I think this is what um, perplexes doctors that see a, a patient that potentially has mold problems is the plethora of symptoms. And a lot of them can be very bizarre. I think it really frightens the doctors. They're like, somebody can't have all of these symptoms or <laughs> even the really unusual ones like the ice pick sensations or the electric shocks. Then the doctor really thinks the patient's crazy and the patient starts to think I'm crazy. So what I want to ask you, and you again, being the great explainer, how you do crazy, hazy and lazy as your sort of triad uh, <laughs> to summarize how these patients feel. How do you use your mold questionnaire to hone in on the diagnosis? Because as we all know, the history is really important, but yes. it's quite extensive. I mean, it really looks like it could be almost any symptom that's ever existed in mankind. That's so right. Tell me yeah. how you use that a little bit, just the total score, or do you really, do you, I mean, myself, when I hear these electrostatic shocks in a patient that I think is very uh, veritable, I'm like, oh, we better look into this. Interesting. Yeah. That questionnaire was actually designed after I got trained in Lyme disease and uh, taking Dr. Richard Horowitz's, his questionnaire, who is a brilliant Lyme doctor, you know, for him to have kind of created this three tiered, three weighted type questionnaire. Um, I had a conversation with him and I said, I want to create something like that for mold, because I think a lot of times that we're, we're diagnosing Lyme, it's actually mold. And he kind of joked with me. It was like, good luck, you know, because it's all going to be the same. And I thought, that's a challenge. I'm going to try to figure this out so I can shorten the time to diagnosis. That's my goal. It's just right. I'm a very impatient person and I'm a very analytical <laughs> person. So how can we shorten that time? And if it is mold, addressing that sometimes makes the Lyme go away because we just address the immune system and exactly. we boosted it up. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to go on these harsh antibiotics or maybe if they do, we can do it in a pulsed fashion. So I sat down and thought, okay, what are my, my mold patients? Like my truly mold sick patients, what are the symptoms? And so I created a questionnaire and then just kind of played with the numbers over the years. You know, what's, what's giving me a more predictable um, number. And actually Dr. Nathan and I are working on uh, validating that questionnaire against lab tests oh, wow. and um, doing a big data collection so that we can kind of figure out, is it actually a validated type questionnaire and could be used in lieu of for people who are low income and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, that's basically what I found is what was interesting about what he's teaching about Lyme. It's really important for us to know yeah. is that Lyme has a migratory pattern in the body. Mold doesn't do that. Mold tends to have exposure related. So that's where you're going to get that, those ups and downs. Um, and then circadian rhythm and autonomic dysnomia. And so there's lots of things that are different about mold. It is more respiratory, but not necessarily in everybody. So this confluence of symptoms of, from mycotoxins alone account in my practice for 75% of the symptoms. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not the spores and the spore fragments. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to, we're going to get to that in a moment. That's really interesting. Uh, so again, you mentioned, I think you highlight this in the book and it's great, I think, conceptually to uh, think of it this way that, but main areas seem to be the mucosal areas. Like for example, the sinuses, obviously into the lower respiratory area, the lungs, but also the gut. Mm-hmm. And even obviously it affects the brain. Any particular reason you think these are target areas or is it just that essentially the sinuses and even, I guess, the gut are ways we're we're getting food in that could have mold on them. We're breathing in air. I mean, all of us breathe in air that has mold spores, even outdoors, whether it's indoors or not. Um, I'm just curious why the brain and how the brain's not protected, but it doesn't seem that it is. Right. Uh, For a few reasons, some of them cross the blood brain barrier, some mycotoxins. They're all a little bit different. Um, so when I'm talking about mycotoxins, I'm trying to talk about the things that are continuous or consistent among all of them. Uh, so they are all lipophilic, meaning they're fat soluble or oil soluble for normal people thinking. And when an, a person who's not medically trained here is fat soluble, they're thinking, um, maybe, you know, fat tire or booty fat. They're thinking that kind of like fat you can see. And a, a medical doctor is thinking, uh oh, that means all the linings. So that means cellular linings. That means, you know, and it's going to concentrate where we have the most exposure. So this being our first, you know, the sinuses being our first entry point of those mycotoxins, they can accumulate in the fatty tissue. And some of them can cross the blood, blood brain barrier, no problem. Others, what they're doing is riding that olfactory bulb right back into the brain. I have a really good image in my upcoming book, A A Light in the Dark for Pandas and Pans, where I was like, I just want to create a graphic that describes this, that the olfactory bulb is one of the few places we don't have a blood-brain barrier. It's made that way so that the bulb can come down and it can taste. You know, we we smell through touch. I say that smelling is a form of physical contact. You know, there's a molecule hitting the little bare nerve fiber of our olfactory brain that is telling the brain what's going on. And of course, we're always sensing for danger and that kind of thing. Well, when it's fat soluble, it can right up into that nerve ending. And then if there's enough concentration, they just keep moving farther back, farther back, farther back. And eventually those mycotoxins can get an elevator ride up into the brainstem. That's fascinating. You know, you just gave me an idea too, how COVID may be causing all this brain fog in patients. Because again, how would this virus traveling around throughout the body, I guess we assume it could get into the brain, cerebral spinal fluid, but that even makes more sense how the virus again to a direct path and maybe an easier path to the brain is causing all of these issues. That's why I think the nasal vaccine and hopefully if that ever comes out is going to be key to really mm-hmm. preventing a lot of COVID. And that's fascinating. As I said, you're the great explainer. So I, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, well, do, and I, I, know. I was lucky. I got a little preview of your other book and I love that because uh, I, I think visual images speak yes. volumes to understanding yes what's going on. Right. And that's how spores can cause brain fog. Even if the mycotoxins are not there, the spores or strep or COVID or, you know, mycoplasma pneumonia, these are all things that when they interact with that mucosal tissue and the sinuses, there is a cytokine response to chew that up and get rid of it. Well, those cytokines can ride the elevator to the brain too. So that can, you know, create basically an inflamed brain from a body problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about diagnostic testing. Now, one of the things that I, you, you know, doctors, they love to have a test that proves something, which has been so elusive in Lyme, as you were talking, because Lyme testing, I interviewed um, 
uh, what was his name from Columbia? Uh, he's like one of the top line, top line experts conventionally in, in infectious disease. But after an hour of interviewing him, basically he was saying there's no test that's helpful at all. So right. I was like, oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> um, but you know, in what Dr. Shoemaker tried to do was really develop tests that he thought were helping to confirm different types of mold algae. But in real life practice, I've, I've found them to be not that useful, except for the mycotoxin, which he doesn't even like. That's why I was talking about all these different things. Right. So I wanted to ask you, because that's one thing you really didn't touch on too much in the book, because I guess it, it assumes that you have to really be working with a doctor. I'd like to go through a couple of, of the testing, and it doesn't have to be a, an extensive answer, but just like kind of either a yes or no, or if you want to explain more. VCS testing, do you find yes. it useful or not? Yes, uh, but, I do. By the way, for our listeners, that's called visual contrasting testing. I do have patients of mine do it. It's simple because all you need is a computer and you go online at uh, vcs.com or uh, survivingmold.com and the test might be $10 or I think the first one's free. But essentially in 15 minutes, it's a screening test. So mm-hmm. anyway, do you mm-hmm. like it at all? Do you use it with your patients? Yeah. 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 I like the VCS test com one the best because okay. I think that it gives better results that are that make more sense to brain fogged people. Okay. So they have little, you know, like little flags and color codes and, right. and you yeah, know, I depending like on what <laughs> column things are happening, it kind right. of gives you a sense of is this a die off reaction? Is this a new exposure? You know, so it does give us some right. some quality information because there are lots of things that are biotoxins you know it's so it could be could have been like people in the west coast getting exposed to wildfire smoke that's been throwing off vcs tests so um and there are other doctors like dr mary ackerley she found that and she does she is shoemaker trained and does still track things like tgf beta one which i will track if there's a lot of brain fog and i'm trying to understand what my target is because resveratrol is a fantastic bioflavonoid for that cytokine um she was finding that when when people are exposed to wildfire smoke, that cytokine goes up, that inflammatory marker goes up. So it makes sense that it would change the VCS test. That's very interesting. Okay, so that's really yeah. good for our listeners to know. That's a, that's something they could do at home and they don't need initially yeah. to have a doctor do anything. Not to get alarmed, but just to say, if, especially if you're a young person and this thing is abnormal, I yes. think you should get that checked out. All yeah, right, and they have an annual fee you can pay. So you can do, I think, up to 30 tests. tests. Yeah. 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 So it's a nice way to do it. If people yeah. are going through remediation, not sure if it worked, you know, they're in that kind of like, am I in a, my insurance moved me to a hotel? Is this place safe? They can kind of take multiple tests and it's a, it's and monitor themselves. Do you ever really use it though to, to track a patient's improvement? I mean, I know Shoemaker writes about this, but like if you had somebody who has a very abnormal test, would you, let's say six months later, have them repeat it and say, hopefully that it's normal or? I used to. And now with the questionnaire, um, you had asked about the score. The score is helpful, but so too is the, the symptom history. So, you know, people will come to me and they'll say, okay, can I get off these sinus treatments? And, you know, they start getting kind of antsy yeah. to get off treatment. And I yeah. say, well, let's, you know, fill out the questionnaire and see how it's going. Because they think, well, I'm not really improving anyway. So why don't I just go off everything? I'm going to go, okay, let's look at your first questionnaire. And they'll look at it and say, oh my gosh, I forgot. I couldn't leave the house because my digestion was such a mess. Or I had migraines. They forget, you know. So using that questionnaire, Mm. now I have used the questionnaire enough with the visual contrast sensitivity. I can almost predict what's happening on the visual tests. And so then we can save them 
you know, mm. another couple bucks. What about the genetic testing, which I still find confusing. And I'm, I'm fairly good at understanding genetic testing, like the celiac, uh, this whole, like, when we get the reports back from like LabCorp, it, it looks just like a big mess. So do you use that at all? The HLA, you know, testing? Too? I don't. Um, I put it in there just so people could know that it was a thing. If that okay. was something that they really wanted to track. Right. Um, I, Again, I have found different types of, of things helpful for that, for predicting who's going to have like the tougher time. Um, I think these are people, the people with the HLA, you know, the Rosetta Stone for mold sensitivity, they tend to be a much slower responder to exposure. So that is, you know, if that's the person that continues to end up in mold and they continue to find like, they're almost attracted to it. You know, they go from their remediated house and then they go, they say, well, we're, I don't feel good here. I don't know if it's mold or not because they're really slow responders. So let's buy a new house or let's get an apartment. And then it takes maybe four weeks before their body can really express that that's a not a good place for them. Right. That's where the HLA is helpful because then we can know um, that there's going to be a delay to their re- response. But it's actually the the detox things that are more the SNPs that related to methylation, um, sulfation, uh, glucuronidation. Those are things that tend to be the patients that have a longer predictive. You know, if we're going to do prognosticating, you know, I always say, okay, if you've got these other things going on, you're going to either need higher supplements to support those systems, and or you may be at this a little bit longer than your average bear. Okay. What about the inflammatory markers, which again, also I stopped ordering. Um, I just didn't find them helpful, but like the C4A or the MSH, the melanocyte stimulating hormone. Do you, you know, you mentioned the TGF beta. Um, this is something that again, Dr. Shoemaker really promoted a lot. I, I, and doing it with, you know, many patients, I never really saw a great pattern. Do you still use that? I, I haven't used that. I was not trained in that way. And so I was diagnosing mold because someone didn't progress with Lyme and then real time started with their mycotoxin urine test. And then I was like, ta-da. Exactly. That's what I feel like. If you're going to have to spend money or time, I'd rather go right to the source. I have just one more question on labs before we get to the mycotoxin. You mentioned in your book, which, you know, as an immunologist, because that's really my, my, you know, my interest, my forte, you mentioned that the natural killer cell function tests, which I wasn't really even familiar with because I know about the NK cells, you know, killer cells. But you say that's sometimes valuable in assessing what's going on in what way and, you know. Yes. I learned this from Dr. Brewer, actually. He presented at a Lyme conference ages ago. And I thought, and this was after his study, I think it was in 2013 or 14 when I read that study about, you know, the nasal passages. Everybody Mm -hmm. has fungus in their sinuses. So it's not the mere presence of fungus. It's that people with chronic fatigue had mycotoxins and people, the healthy controls did not. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is colonization, you know, Um, so it was, I think soon after that, because then I was thinking, I'm going to hear everything this man has to say. I'm going to get to every conference where he's speaking. (laughs) It's hard to get a hold of. I was trying to get him on my conference. He (laughs) would not get back to me. I don't know. He's (laughs) He's a busy man. Yeah. Yeah. So when he, after that study, I mean, I really, I think I, I stalked him a little bit. Okay. So it was one of those conferences at, at ILADS that I thought, okay, oh, Brewer speaking. I'm definitely going in person. I want to hear this. And he presented that about, because he's infectious disease. Right. That was in his wheelhouse and he was finding low natural killer cell function. And so I started running that when there's insurance coverage, because it is yeah. very expensive test. Yeah. Um, and it was 
stunning. It almost became really? a predictor for the person that was going to be um, maybe even have a cancer diagnosis as a result of their mold exposure because their natural killer cell function was so depleted from the mold. And so that's the person that if I run that and that's lower, you know, I've, there's a lot of immune dysfunction or immune depletion, or, you know, we can kind of keep seeing um, precancerous findings on a, on a skin, you know, a dermatology exam, or we're seeing precancerous this or a Barrett's esophagus or something like that. And I'm like, Ooh, we need to know what's going on with your natural killer cells. Then I run it. If it's low, that's the person I'm like, you absolutely must every day connect with nature and do the Shinrin Yoku that you have to, your, your immune system needs. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Just so our patients know, it's like the basic (laughs) prescription we're writing is get out into nature, inhale good oxygen. You know, (laughs) I, I work in the heart of New York city in Midtown and you can imagine the congestion there. And on any nice day, I'm, I am fortunate. My office is about a block and a half from Central Park. Oh. I just pick up my lunch and I head into the the forest yes. to uh, to get some good oxygen. And it's very tranquil and helps me reset for the day. And I, I tell patients this a lot. I know they sometimes think like, I'm coming to see Dr. Mitchell and he's telling me to go out to nature and <laughs> find a park. Uh, but, if, you know, I think if I say it, you know, and I'm taking my time to emphasize this, hopefully they realize I think it's important. It's not only you think it is. I mean, there there are studies, Japanese studies on this, yeah. where it's not only the being out in nature, it's the appreciation yes. that you actually have a moment of appreciation. And they have tested grad students. They took them out. And the one, you know, they had like, there are multiple studies now. And that is one of the few things that was able to raise natural killer cell count and function by being out in nature and and appreciating. So you don't have to be in the woods. Like you can go sit by a tree on your stoop, you know, and just like connect and appreciate. And so I tell people in the city, I'm like, no excuses. You know, you need to get out and do that. (laughs) You can find a tree somewhere. (laughs) Yes, yes. Or clouds. You know, it doesn't have to be the green stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. It is true. I know it's funny. When I made me think of this, when I I have a fortune, I have a pool and in the nice weather, when I like just lay on my back and I look at the sky, I don't know. I just, it's something so relaxing about it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one more question before we get to mycotoxins, which is so important. So, in dealing with the sinuses, how do you feel also about the Marcon's testing? I was doing that for a while and I kind of stop because I'm just assuming all these patients have biofilms and whether they're Marcon's positive or not. I mean, what's the difference? We gotta we're gonna treat the right. sinuses anyway. So again, useful. Same. Yeah. Same. Okay. Yeah. I used okay. to run it when I first learned because again I started with the naturopathic side. Right. And then I had shoemaker patients come to see me. And they're saying, you know, here are my Marcon's tests. And I'm like, I want a Marcon's test. (laughs) Oh, I want, yeah, I I need to learn about this. And so I was running a lot of them. And again, it was just this chasing the, chasing it a little bit. Yeah. Is it useful sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Where we can see, because you're always in this game of new exposure versus treatment response. So uh, sometimes we really need to understand how much biofilm was going on there. Is it a plain point now where I need to move from xylitol to EDTA in the sinuses okay. because we're not getting, you know, we're just not getting the biofilm right. knocked down. That makes yeah. sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the the big player here. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. You know, I've, t- I've talked to Neil over time. I've read his book multiple times. Again, I like his approach to things. I, as I said, I love the way you explain things. So the urine mycotoxin report, again, this is where patients 
get a sample of urine from one of the labs that I'm familiar with real time, which has been around for a while. Some patients do Great Plains, which we can't do in New York, but I've seen reports from them. And more recently, Vibrant Wellness, which I, I tend to like their reports a lot. Uh, take me through if you don't mind, you know, because again, as a doctor, I tell patients this all the time, you know, it's kind of funny what goes on in medicine now, you know, today, <laughs> I think the old time doctors would croak or like turn their graves <laughs> that, you know, the patients get the labs before you even get the labs, you know, right? right. You have access to that, right. which again, it's nice that they have that. So this way there's not a mix up, but what happens is, you know, because the labs in color coded, like red flag, anything abnormal, the yeah. patients get extremely anxious. And what I try to explain to patients as soon as they sit down in my exam room or on Zoom, that's where I'm doing a lot of consults mm -hmm. these days, I say to them, look, my job is to be the translator for you. Because when you look at labs, you could be off 50 or 100 points on one, believe it or not, lab test. And it's maybe not that serious. You right. could be off one or two points that can your potassium and it could kill you. So right. let me do the explaining. But um, I've struggled a little bit, and that's why I'm really looking forward to your insight in this. You know, in reading quite a few of these reports now from real time, and now more lately I've been doing some from Vibrant Wellness, when to take the elevated levels of these different mycotoxins, ochratoxin, aflatoxin, gliotoxin, trichithocines, if I say that right, zeylerones, which are hard to say, <laughs> when, you know, which ones concern you the most and Again, I tend to like to see when there's like at least like two points elevation because they're really talking about very minuscule, you know, in some of like the real time reports, as you know, you know, the, the cutoff could be one and they'll say presence 1.016, you know, so what does that mean? So, right. Well, and we have to understand that these are nanoparticles, mycotoxins are nanoparticles. So okay. the, those micro changes make a big difference to a body. So a okay. 0.02 change. That that's significant yeah. when you're yeah. talking at a nanoparticle size. Okay, that's good um, And I think that what I'm looking forward to with all of the labs is that they that we really start to understand what is the normal range. Um, but then we also in functional medicine we know that there are lots of normal ranges that aren't healthy ranges. You know, cholesterol has changed since I've been in practice. <laughs> What's well, more lower, lower Only 10% of the people are <laughs> in right. the range. <laughs> right. And then, you know, I've seen IgG totals that it used to be that you had to be between, you know, seven to a thousand, 700 to a thousand. Now that's lower. And I'm like, that's because we're sicker. Our right. population is. Right. They keep on shifting the reference ranges to right. what's. What they're, re what they're receiving the data on. And that doesn't mean necessarily that it's good. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Same thing with testosterone. You know, that keeps dropping as what's, what's considered normal. Well, that's not necessarily right. healthy for men. Right. So I think that, you know, what I'm looking forward to is that we get some sort of an idea of what is an optimal or, um, allowable amount of a mycotoxin in someone's blood or urine. And so we can do urine testing and we can also do um, blood antibody testing for mycotoxins, is not just true? for mold. I never, I yeah. That. Yeah. It's that? called my myco lab. It's a fantastic test. It's one of the only tests on the market and it wasn't around when I wrote my book. So, um, Second edition, we'll have it in there. <laughs> my Myco Lab. My and, Myco Lab. And that mm -hmm. has a blood test for the mycotoxins? Yes. Wow. Yeah. But, but, and, but do they have to go to, uh, I mean, because obviously the urine mycotoxin is easy because people can do this at home. So right. do they have to go to a special lab? Do they have to go to your office, to an office to have it drawn so it gets to that lab? Like, how, how does that work? You can get a kit 
Oh, it's a kit. From my micro lab. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and then they, they, if they can find a draw site, like a quest draw site or okay. something like that. That's really yeah. interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. So that one is, uh, that what's cool about that. You know, we can, I think it's really important for people to also get antibody testing to molds. So you understand that allergy situation. Um, but this is an antibody test to mycotoxins. That's so really you, interesting. when you have so, both of those, I yeah. didn't know you could even do that because like, as you explained so well in the book, you know, okay, spores, I can understand causing an immune response, but mycotoxins are a gas, right? Right, right. So they can make antibodies. I guess they could because they, they've done it for formaldehyde. So I guess it's possible. Okay. Yeah. So I think that that's one of the, the, um, HLA situations is that those people, it takes a little longer for them to tag the mycotoxin as a toxin, as a Mm -hmm. foreign invader, if you want to think of it that way. So my MycoLab, what I love about this test is that it's the only one on the market that answers the question of, am I being exposed right now? Because it's an IgE and an IgG. So if their IgE is positive, you know that they've been exposed in an appreciable way to tweak their immune system in the past two to four weeks. Dr. Campbell, who's the medical director, Dr. Andrew Campbell, um, very well, you know, highly published doctor, he would say four weeks, but... For my patients, they're often trying to understand, am I being exposed right now, either in my home or in my safe house? And so that test can answer that question very well. And that tells us then, ooh, either remediation didn't work or there was cross-contamination or the place that you're in right now, you need to move to another place. And so that helps them, you know, prevent that. Now, if they have those HLAs, they may take longer to expose to express that. And so they may be responding with more of an IgG, you know, this kind of response. The problem with that test is that mold causes immune deficiency. Mm. So before running that test, I run an IGAM. I do an IgG, IgE at at the very least, those two, Mm -hmm. because if those totals are too low, then that test is not going to be a reliable test. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love this podcast, listeners. I... I, I always say I'm not the smartest in the doctor in the room yet, but I will be after all doing all these podcasts. And Dr. Krista just gave me another uh, another weapon from my arsenal in helping my patients. So thank you. That yeah. was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That leads me right into the next uh, area before we get to treatment. So hang on your hats, everybody. But home testing. Now, this is this is the bane of everybody's existence because... It's, it can be so expensive. Is it worth it? Can you trust the results? You know, what company you use? Um, I've had on, as I mentioned, the podcast before, someone I do trust in my area, Joe Reese, uh, that, you know, he goes into homes. He did my home. I had a problem in my home. I, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. I moved into a new home about three years ago that was totally redone. I was so excited. My wife was thrilled. You know, we'd been lived somewhere else for 30 years. It was like a new start. And I went down to my basement where apparently they had, it had been unfinished and they quickly to try to sell it, finished it with a lot of carpeting. Oh. And I walked down into the basement and I said, oh, it smells like new carpeting. You know how kids like the smell of weird things, you know, Mm -hmm. as an adult, I'm like, wow, this is really strong. Anyway, we closed on the house because my wife liked everything else about it and so did I. And then when we actually moved in and I was starting to move my gym equipment down to the basement, I said, I was there 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I'm like, I can't stay down here. I'm going to get sick. 
Oh my you God. Know, and, and I, again, I mentioned this on the prior podcast. I, I called the company that laid the carpet down. I said, did you use some kind of heavy glue? You know, cause that's what it smelled like. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, we, we actually stapled it to the floor. So I know that wasn't a problem. And that's when I reached out to Joe Reese and he came in with his knee pads and his special infrared light. And I said, Oh my God, if I have a mold problem, this is going to be a disaster. Cause oh, no, I was no. getting into it myself, but it turned out it was, volatile uh, organic compounds from the carpeting and the humidity. Yeah. Now, it cost me a, a pretty penny to rip out all that carpeting and replace it with tile, but we got dehumidifiers in, I got air circulation, and thank God, I'm doing some exercise these days in the winter here. Because, you know, in Wisconsin, too, it gets cold. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. like, <laughs> I, I can't ride my bike in the winter here. Right, right. So, but anyway, aside from my little rant, no, that's so important that, you know, those well, yeah, personal, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think people really relate because everybody thinks, they, oh, it can't happen to me. I never had this mm-hmm. problem. And then all of a sudden, once you start looking. But my question to you is this, because this is what the heartbreak is. I've had patients, unfortunately, with, you know, with some economic distress that couldn't move out of their apartment. I have people that they're on the fence. You know, maybe they can afford it, but it's a huge undertaking, moving their family. So I'm really curious, Dr. Crystal, what your approach is to patients, because of course I know, and we're going to get to your treatment, uh, your five tools for getting better. That's, that's coming up. But the first one is a, avoidance, but that's not always possible. So how would you go about getting the testing? Let's put it that way first mm-hmm. and, and then making those big decisions for patients. I highly recommend using the experts. You know, your doctor should not be navigating this from the clinical space. They've never seen your home. They've never trained right. in building dynamics. They've never. Right. You know, there are people who spend their whole life's work like you and I continuously learning, continuously reading Mm -hmm. papers. They're doing that for homes and every home or built space is as individual as bodies, as humans are. Yeah, they all have their own things. I think it's really after he said this on my podcast and I I know Joe for a while, he said, think of your house as a living organism. And that blew me away. I loved that. Yeah, because before because like I know he found he was telling me how my attic wasn't breathing well. You know, think about it as your lungs. And right. I mean, I was like, oh my God, I just thought this place is just like, you know, slabs of wood and cement. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So using the experts, absolutely. And mm. I know that there are financial situations where there's a lot of wishful thinking that it's not a problem. And so people will get the little mold plates, either, you know, there are some online places or the big box stores. They need to know that those plates, there there has to be a specific kind of food. They call it an auger. There has to be a specific kind of food for different mold species. So this idea that you can go get a mold plate and you can set it in the middle of your room and it will pick up all of the molds in that space and grow on it. No. So That's if you have a normal, yeah. yeah. And so most of the augers only grow out 10% of the toxic molds. Oh, wow. So it's like all the So you might be, you know, it's, I don't know that it's, it, where it's useful is someone that will understand that limitation. And if you find mold on those plates, you have a problem, but it might not show it on the plate. So if you don't find anything, you don't necessarily, you're not scot-free. So that's where it's really important to have an expert come and, and do the work. Sometimes, you know, I think it's really important to say what your intention is. If it's a rental situation, if it's just like, I just want to get out of my lease. If it's a problem, I want to get out of my lease. So they don't have to sample test every single space to make sure that you do a full remediation of your space because you're not the one responsible for that. So sometimes it is find the worst problem, 
let's get some good sampling. And it's wonderful to have a third party. You actually need to, in order to get out of lease, you have to have a third party. It's this whole chain of custody that, um, because there's fraud in the industry, in any industry, you have to have a third party independent certified person to sign off and say, this sample was taken from this address at this time and this date and from this surface. And they sign their licensed name on that to say, you know, I'm certifying that this is a sampling that I did. Then an insurance company or a, a lease or something like that. Now you have that third party. So that's where it's really beneficial because they've got the eyes to spot the problems. Do they, do they, <laughs> do they have any, uh, is, you know, I've seen this with patients too, the, the legality issue. Is it, is it a little bit on their side or it's, it's still, it's an uphill battle? Very uphill battle. Very, yeah. very uphill battle. And you know, that's part of that is obviously it's about money, but yeah. it also is that we have a positive research. So there isn't a lot on mycotoxins. And why? Why is that? There's a ton on animal research, but there's very little on humans because it's a known toxin. Right. Medical ethics dictates that we can't purposefully expose someone to a toxin to figure out what we can give them to right. get them better. <laughs> so right. toxin-based in, in, you know, illnesses, yeah. the, it's, it's the, yeah. their solution is removal of the toxin. Right. So, you know, we're not going to necessarily be putting people on mycotoxin exposure, you know, go sniff these tubes throughout your day. You can't even find medical you, students to do that for money. No. So, you know, you know that it's, uh, it's pretty dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, they're carcinogenic, they're teratogenic, they, they cause birth defects, they cause cancer, they gene toxic. So that's not something that we can do and then walk away with research. So when people say, show me the randomized clinical control trial, I say there aren't any, and it's because of our medical ethics. We cannot do that. Can I ask you just, it's kind of a crossover back to the, we were talking about before with the different mycotoxins, which come from the actual molds itself. Are there any of these molds, I guess like stachybotrys, which is one of the ones people all know, I think the black one, are any of the ones and any of the mycotoxins that really alarm you? You're like this, you have to get out of this home. This is. Yeah, they all do because now this is what I do. But, um, I think it is one of the very interesting things in the industry, the people that are doing inspection, they have forgotten that they have a selection bias of being called to go into homes where there's problems. Right. Not every home has a problem, right. but because they see aspergillus and penicillium all the time, right. they say, oh, that's normal. We see that all the time. There's a difference between seeing it all the time and normal. Right. And so they've kind of minimized those as the dangerous. Oh, so that's important. Okay. And they've maximized Stachybotrys, ketomium, ketomium trichoderma, right, right, fusarium. Those are all kind of, those make trichothecenes, which are going to be the more, the most, we would say, um, cellular disruptive. So they're, they can change the mitochondrial function, the genes, that kind of thing. So then they're potent protein synthesis inhibitors, which means not just muscle mass, but things like enzymes that drive our cellular systems and things Mm. like, you know, making red blood cells and (laughs) DNA, RNA, you know, those are all proteins. So those are the, those get the press, but I think it's dangerous to think of these as tears because aspergillus and penicillium make ochratoxin and aflatoxin, which are carcinogenic. So for, for a remediator walk or an inspector to go in and say, oh, that's aspergillus and penicillium. We see them all the time. That's a problem because they're all dangerous in their own unique way. They all have a little special sauce. Okay. 
All right. That's good to know. Yeah. All right. We're going to move on to treatment because, again, I think that's what a lot of patients are seeking once they know that there's a mold issue and they're really having trouble finding someone to help them. I love the way you do in your book about the five tools. As I said, you always lay out things so well. And your analogy, which I found interesting, was called peel the orange. I guess for some reason you didn't say peel the onion because you didn't want it to yeah. be, I think that was deliberate. I got that sense from reading your, your book. So I thought that was interesting because peeling the orange mm-hmm. uh, and the five uh, tools. Uh, I'm going to skip avoidance because we kind of just went into that. I mean, um, but the other, the other four, which I'll mention, and then we'll go into detail, the fundamentals the protection, which I love, and the repair, and then the fight, which I like mm-hmm. too. So let's talk about the fundamentals. And I think these are sometimes overlooked because they sound, you know, too holistic. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So uh, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you think are really important, you know, because you mentioned about drinking spring water, saunas, good sleep. I mean, obviously, they're probably all important. Is there anyone where you kind of, you know, put on your, your teaching hat and say, look, you got to do this. You got to get to a sauna or something like that. Like when, you know, when's the, when are these important? Yeah. Diet, diet is one of their best tools. It's a superpower. You know, I think it's important for people to know that. And for avoidance, I know that's tough for some people. I do have a, a, a course called nine things to know if you're still in mold that gives you what you should and should not do if you're actively being exposed. Cause there are some things in my book that are going to be harder on your body. If you do them, while you're in the mold exposure. One of those is glutathione. When you're actively being exposed to mold, doing glutathione or adding glutathione could be pushing your body too much and you could have more mm. symptoms for taking it than for not taking it. Um, so paying attention to your body always. So yeah, so that's on the avoidance side. And then fundamentals, oh, back on the avoidance, in occupational studies, it's a coin flip. 50% of the people that get out of the building have no problem. They're healed. 50% of the people still are symptomatic. So after some technical difficulties, we are back. I, I wish I could say it was after a big sponsorship, but no, after some technical difficulties, which Dr. Krista saved the day, we're going to get back to uh, the treatment plan for patients that are, are suffering with mold toxicity. Uh, and we were talking about fundamentals and just a couple of quick things. You know, you, you're going to, I want to hear what your detailed suggestions for eating stinky foods. And I love that line that the solution to pollution is dilution. Yes. <laughs> so, that's a Dr. Crinianism right there. That's okay. a, yeah. No, yeah. Give him credit. <laughs> yes. so, so tell me a little bit more though, why these are really important, you know, again, in something that's essentially airborne, but that it's important to help them heal and get better. Yeah. That's kind of a mind blowing concept of something airborne ending up inside our body. You know, the idea of like, what are we actually, how is mold making you sick? And so that idea that when you're breathing in these mycotoxins, they're soaking in right into the, because they're lipophilic, that makes them a very good, you a very good sponge for them. And so they make it into the bloodstream. And the way that we detoxify these is either through the kidneys when we pee them out. That's why we do a urine mycotoxin test and can find them, or it goes to the liver and the liver has to package it up into bile which is what carries out fats and that bile gets secreted to the gut. And then we poop them out. Ideally, unfortunately 
we recycle a lot of our bile because bile is supposed to be there to preserve our fat soluble nutrients like vitamin A and D through the winter time when you're not outside and you're not eating fresh vegetables. Mm. Um, that's really convenient for preserving vitamins, really bad design for toxins. <laughs> so. Very interesting. It's going to be really important when we get to the next part of your, uh, your plan. So yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so what foods do you, would you tell a patient, you know, I mean, unless they are either allergic or just for some reason cannot stand to eat that are really key foods. You know, like a lot of times I tend to think of, and you mentioned this in your book, because you know, one of my favorite books, by the way, for patients is called The Color Code. It was written yeah. by some nutritionists at Tufts and it just really beautifully explains how nature with all the different colors and different foods has all these phytonutrients and antioxidants. Right. So, I mean, like, for example, do you say like, I mean, obviously berries are maybe a very important part. Yeah. Yeah. Know, so the eating vegetables. the rainbow, kind of the idea is the eating stinky foods, eat the rainbow, get good fats. You know, these are all things, part of the, the, the big categories of what should I eat? Um, and the reason for the stinky food and what I mean by stinky is things, I mean, we all know it, you know, I mean, the, an egg, um, fish, broccoli, especially steamed broccoli. Once you start cooking it, you think, oh, wow, what's going on? Or kale, mm -hmm. you know, it kind of has that yeah. smell to it. Right. That's a little bit farty, you know, just yeah, a little. Yeah, but it's like off-putting, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. right. it's supposed to be good for you, but, you know. But it is very good for us because yeah. what those are containing, that stink is sulforaphane. And that is part oh, of that right. thing. I was saying the, the path of the mycotoxin in the body right. goes to the kidneys or it goes to the liver. Right. The liver side of that needs the stinky foods. The right. liver side needs that sulforaphane to detoxify. The kidney side needs the bioflavonoids, liver too. But so I'm being, I'm trying mm -hmm. to talk about the two paths as if they're- No, so it's good. really important. I, I hope yeah. the listeners are appreciating this because yeah, I mean, people probably heard in the past, you know, the broccoli is the great anti-cancer food. And it's all about, like, I think they call it phase two of the liver detoxification, yes. sulforaphane yes. is very important. So yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, garlic, onions, all of those those kind of stinky foods. That's helping detoxify these naturally. You know, we're built to do this. We we've been, you know, eating moldy food and and being exposed to times of the year what's a little more moldy outside. You know, that kind of thing. And so we're we're wired to handle this if you feed the body what it needs. And you know, it's yeah. so interesting, again, you know, talking with you because I will recall 30 years ago when I was in practice and doing conventional medicine, I used to go on my lunch break. There was a little health food store there. And there was a woman there who, I guess if it was a different time, that would probably be a naturopathic doctor, but she didn't. She didn't have any degree, any licensure, but she was so incredibly knowledgeable about foods and how to detox the body. So that when I used to go on my lunch break, I would, I just love sitting and talking with her mm. and I learned so much, you know, I saw tons of people eating wheatgrass, but the point I wanted to get back to <laughs> was, this is something I was not emphasized in medical school, how important it is to be pooping a couple of times a day and how, yeah how dangerous constipation is. I mean, no one yes. likes to be constipated. It's it's an awful feeling. And I know, you know, in talking, but a lot of times it's not asked that much in medical um, mm -hmm. in histories or, you know, seeing a patient. And to me now, it's like the biggest alarm because it's like, you're not getting those toxins out of the body. That's right. Yeah. So, so what, what, yeah. Is, what is your go-to? My go-to, I'll share it with my patients. It's something that I do myself too. I, I like taking organic flax seeds and I tell patients this all the time and I'm probably a broken record. And I 
put it into a coffee grinder, you know, one of those little twenty dollar ones, and I grind it up fresh, and I yeah. put two whopping tablespoons either on some food, breakfast I'm eating, or in a, or in a drink. Uh, I know you mentioned that. What else do you like? What's your your really go to? Uh, you know, bowel stimulants. Next. Yeah. I mean, fiber can be a little bit tricky for some people. If they've been mold sick, they might have gastroparesis or problems mm-hmm. with peristalsis. The beautiful thing about fiber is it, it's, it can bring you to normal from either direction. If you have too frequent a stools, fiber can bind up that stool a little bit and slow right. things down. And if you have not frequent enough fiber can exercise, that's what it's supposed, that's what fiber oh, does right. mm-hmm. is it, it creates bulk, which presses on the the wall of our gut and then the response or reflex is to push back and squeeze. So that's how fiber is working. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's exercising your colon. Well, if you've been exposed to mold, the mycotoxins are neurotoxic. So they get in the way of that reflex. So you can have fiber and it can be pushing on the walls of the bowel, but the bowel, the there's a little delay because the mycotoxins are there. And so for some people, fiber can actually constipate them more. Really? And in those, yeah. So in those cases, we have to go higher up the tube. And I find that with mold that we, you can start with the things that we would think of as laxatives, like people will use magnesium citrate or Mm, high dose vitamin C to kind of get a bowel flush Mm -hmm. fiber, um, maybe something like a Senna, like um, you can get, you know, stool softeners and you can get Senna cot. Um, Those are things that are kind of lower bowel cleaning, but when you're exposed to mold, we, those may run out of steam. Those may work for a week to two, and then they don't work. That means that's a mold thing usually. Interesting. (laughs) And we need to go higher up the tube and we need to start stimulating bile because the bile is the thing that starts, you know, our, our saliva and then the stomach acid and then the bile. So that's almost like pre, I call them pre binders. So if my patients, I want to add binders in the form of insoluble fiber to help them carry out that bile Fiber is really good at grabbing that mycotoxin laden bile and carrying it out. So we don't recycle it. Uh, But if they're getting constipated from that, then I know we need to go higher up. We need to go the pre binders. We need to do things that are going to make and move more bile. Mm. So quite often bile then will stimulate that weak or lazy colon and it'll tell it to contract. So it's a different way to send the message. Interesting. Um, I want to move on if we can to, uh, to protection and talking about binders. Now I know in the beginning, I have to tell you, this was like overwhelming for me learning because I, I, I'm very much interested in, in the holistic functional medicine approach. I don't really like giving patients a job, like where they have like 20 different supplements. It becomes a job and it becomes expensive. But the binders are interesting because again, from whether from Dr. Schumacher to Dr. Nathan, I'm sure to yourself, they play a really key role because as you really very well explained as you usually do, that the bile recirculating the toxins. And that's something, again, I learned in physiology and medicine about the enterohepatic circulation, which mm-hmm. for years I didn't know, I don't think I really even understood. Right, <laughs> now, right. Now you really understand because if it just keeps on, people don't understand it, but how do I know not get rid of the mold naturally because it just keeps on recirculating. So binders become important. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit, because Dr. Nathan does in his book, and he's very selective about how he does it. And we've actually done dual consults on patients where he has this whole protocol between bentonite clay, the activated charcoal chlorella. And I know you probably didn't get a chance to go that into your book because again, it's probably more between the doctor and the patient and you don't want people Mm -hmm. self 
treating at this level. So would you mind telling a little bit the sequence or do you target or use certain uh, binders depending on what their mycotoxins are? I typically don't go to that level of detail because okay. I find that what we're trying to bind is bile. And so okay. when we look at the studies of people who have cholecystectomies, they're missing their gallbladder and they have problems with too much bile in the colon or they have bile dump diarrhea, those studies, so not everything is a mold study, you know, we can look at That's other things. Mm -hmm. um, in those studies, they find that insoluble fiber is a very effective binder of, of the bile and cholesterol. We know this in cholesterol, you know, that's one of the greatest ways to bring right. down cholesterol is that are the things that we use for mold, interestingly enough, is fiber and vitamin B3. So it's very interesting how that mm -hmm. correlates. So I think that, you know, I start my patients with trying to get them food-based binders because you talked about it's one less thing we have to work around medication, you know, Dr. Shoemaker's, um, and he's, he's binding bile very effectively using cholestyramine or well call, right. um, that is the target, but that is also a medication that can bind up your medications and supplements and foods. Right. There's so a lot of interaction. Timing and, of it all. Oh, it becomes, it's a job. It's a job. So, so thankfully, job. you know, and in, in my training with Dr. Crinian, he was in his book, clean, green, and lean. He has a bunch of studies in that book and th that those are older studies, but now we have newer studies that are showing, wow. Yeah. Insoluble fiber works very well. And so how you're doing it is perfect because you're grinding the seeds. You're exposing more of that insoluble fiber particulate to the, the colon wall. And so it can grab more bile mm. and you know, it's easy to do. You can just add it to food. Yeah, you it, can it, do it tastes good. I, I was just funny. I've experimented over these, a lot of things like, for example, flaxseed oil tastes like turpentine. That's horrible. Yeah. You know mm -hmm. I mean? I, I tried that for a very short period of time and I was like, no, can't do that. But then when I found out about the grinding the flaxseeds into this fine powder, I was like, this tastes yeah. kind of good. It's a little nutty taste. So Right. And even if somebody has SIBO, they can use the SIBO friendly kinds of fibers like using sesame seed, pumpkin seed, and sunflower seed, mm. which is wonderful in the morning. You know, why, you put that on. Why can't they do the flax seed if they have seed? It's, that has a certain kind of um, compound that will agitate, will ferment. So Inch when you're dealing with, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So flax seed, chia seed, um, those are kind of on the, and psyllium husk, which is, you know, a very yeah. old standard, very, right. very effective fiber. Right. It works. Yeah. yeah. Works. Yeah. 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 So I use, you know, binders are part of it, but we do the diet first in the fundamentals because if you're, if you're eating mycotoxins, that's going to continue to send the message to the body that fungus is trying to take over and they're going to have more symptoms. So if we get them on a low mold, high binder diet, and what I mean by low mold is not just things that that are mold, like mushrooms and yeast, but get rid of things that are typically mycotoxin contaminated. Then we don't have to have this precision binding story because mm. really what we're doing is we're binding bile. And yes. I really appreciate, you know, Dr. Nathan, he's dealing with very sensitive patients. Right. And there are times where I will add extra binding in the form of like a charcoal. I like a product called Takasumi Supreme. It's from Superior, Supreme Nutrition Products. This is carbonized bamboo. And in the Japanese studies, they showed that it actually absorbs some EMFs. And I thought that was interesting. Oh, wow. um, so that, you know, for the person where I'm about to start the fight phase, yes. it's a really good time to add extra, extra binding, extra help, because they're going to be spilling a lot of inflammatory. That's an activated charcoal, you said, or a... Um... Um, it is. Well, you can think of it like an activated it... charcoal. It's carbonized bamboo. So it's using the bamboo has a particular... Um, 
hungry property, I might say, using my easy explanation. Uh, and so it's a, it's carbonized, so it's made into charcoal, but it's using bamboo as the source, mm-hmm. which makes it a much more hungry binder. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, a lot of them, I mean, the chlorella, the bentonite clay, these are just all different variations. I mean, do people typically need, or, you know, as he's seen the patients, they need all three, because I know he's done it like sequentially. Yeah, um, he has, so he kind of goes for, if you have this mycotoxin, then you need this binder. And, you know, again, I, when we think about, when I think about it's a water damage building exposure and we've controlled with the diet, that's why I was right. saying diet is a superpower because yeah. you can get the mycotoxins out of the diet. And by the way, if anyone is going to be doing a urine mycotoxin test, I have a handout on my website that is the prep that you should be doing. You should be going on a low mycotoxin diet for three days to make sure that what we're seeing in your urine is actually from your body and not from your diet. So it takes that that um, limitation of an excretion-based test, it, it really reduces the limitation of that test. One of the quick questions is because you brought that up. You know, I, I know also Dr. Nathan mentions his book and you, know, you talked about, do you have patients to uh, take a few days of glutathione or NAC or do a sauna before they do the urine mycotoxin test? To try to <laughs> I'm so glad you asked that question. Yeah. I, I think I've done the most split sample testing on anybody and I have two sets of identical twins. Two, one set is mine. So when we had our mold exposure, I went into science mode. I went into test everything. Let's get information. And I ran real time with the same urine sample as the Great Plains, with the same urine sample as Vibrant Labs, with the same blood sample on the same day with my myco. So that's a 45-minute discussion in my my doctor training course. The summary takeaway is we don't know yet. Do you provoke or don't you provoke? Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's we not don't know. Like, okay. Um, so okay. Great Plains, based on my data that I presented at their conference, where I had one of my twins was taking glutathione and one was not, they were both exposed to the same thing. They both had the same diet because I was the cook, yeah. um, living in the same house. Um, there were other, there was one other change is one was exercising and one was not, but we found that the glutathione across the board reduced most of the mycotoxins in the urine. So I think there's this reduce thing of them so they'd be less. Them. Yes. Holy moly. Wow. That's as nice. compared to real time. So the mass spec method, I think is that's a little bit different conversation than using the ELISA method. So yeah, this is all covered. Oh, and wow. I would say to yeah. provoke or not to provoke, that's a discussion between your practitioner and yourself. And what I pre-test people with is their glutathione status. So just like before I run a an immunoglobulin test based, you know, an antibody test. I run the immunoglobulins before I do an excretion test. I run the glutathione so that that I know. Is that like the glutathione in the red blood cell? Is that the one that you- Red blood cell glutathione through doctor's data. My favorite, however, is um, HDRI uh, dot. Oh boy. I don't know if it's HDRI dash something. Um, Health Diagnostics Research Institute. Mm. Um, They used to be called Vitamin Diagnostics or European Diagnostics, Mm -hmm. but they're now called Health Diagnostics Research Institute. Mm -hmm. You can uh, check to see not only their glutathione status, but how much is reduced and how much is oxidized. So Mm -hmm. how how are they doing on their glutathione stores, their ability to re- use their glutathione. And if they have a really high, high oxidized glutathione, they need more vitamin C, bioflavonoids, vitamin E, the things that are going to help re-reduce your glutathione. So that's like a precursor before I run urine mycotoxin for the sensitive patient that these are people that, you know, 
they can't go into a big box store without getting symptomatic because there's too many chemicals. Oh my gosh. Don't right. even That's... imagine, you know, like burning a candle in their house or, you know, they get right. offended when someone drives by with a stinky car that has, a, you know, that, that person is not excreting very well. And so mm. pre-testing their glutathione status, then that tells me not because every mycotoxin goes through the glutathione pathway in the liver, but we're talking cellular mitochondrial glutathione status. If they mm. don't even have cellular glutathione, they don't have mitochondria working. They're not going to be able to mobilize that and even get it to the liver. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so that's really. a person where I might provoke yeah. everybody I mean, else. Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, just again, to go to really kind of flip back to the symptom thing, you know, again, what really sets off the light bulb in my head too, when a patient says they can't walk down a supermarket aisle without getting sick, these are the patients, you know, quote, the chemical sensitivity patients, and we're not yeah. going to get into it today, but they probably are mold mast cell activation type patients yes. who really suffer that have been quite overlooked by the medical profession because they didn't know how to test them, what to make of it. But, you know, again, you're mentioning such key things why. Yeah could be an issue um, and it may not be their building it might be their breast implants mm. you know i mean that's the thing is like there are so many sources i just yeah. had a post um i had so many patients where I, I was able to put this together this years ago that their mold illness started when they had a waterbed as a really because wow. the biotoxins from that moldy water in their in their waterbed were coming into their body as they were sleeping wow. and that was the thing so i was thinking wow it's kind of like wow. breast implants Wow, it's kind right, of the same, they you know? things for like the silicone or whatever else they have floating yeah. around in there. Hmm. And it's not just the silicone, it's that they get moldy because well, they're they're saline and oh. them get moldy and then they're sick from that. So multiple chemical sensitivities, these kind of, you know, the symptoms can be very broad and get missed. And that's why it's not a thing in medicine. Yeah. And it's also, you know, like you said, nobody wants nobody wants to have all of this. They don't want a patient with all these things. They don't know how to fix it. They can't fix it in a 10 minute, they can't fix it in their 10 minute consultation, which you and I know really, you have to really hear these people out because you just got to try to pick up on any clue that you can, that's going to help you help them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I talk about in protect, I talk about fish oil, you know, these are all things you can prescribe now. So, you know, a medical doctor doesn't have to be afraid of mold sickness. It is amazing what, give them a diet, put them on fish oil, put them on probiotic of VSL3 or something like that, put them on ursodicolic acid and an antifungal, and you're going to make a big difference in a patient's life who has mold sickness. You just summarized hugely, you know, uh, probably some of the key (laughs) things that that frighten all these doctors. I want to ask you too, I do in my own office, because I think if you mentioned it once on, even like, I think the last um, mentorship I was on, I know you didn't see me, but you were speaking to a whole doctors, you know, which they were great, Dr. Nathan. But, you know, I do IV vitamins therapy in the office mm-hmm. and I, I do find it's helpful there are some people that maybe disagree on that but what, what's your feeling if someone you know is sick do you find it's a it's helpful huge yeah huge. especially yeah. for the leaky gut people the people who have absolutely so either they have you know gastroparesis or peristalsis issues so motility issues and or they are working on you know the the denuding of the of the absorptive surfaces of the gut they could be eating all the right things, but there's just not enough absorptive surface. So by the time they have their bowel transit time, that nutrient has just been flushed away before they had enough fingers, you know, so everything mold will take all the fingers of our gut and that is supposed to be miles and miles and miles, and it will blunt them. So now we just basically have a wall where we used to have fingers 
that's not enough time. And so when we use IV nutrient therapy, I'm a huge fan. And I would say that I see the biggest changes in patients when we can do the IV nutrients and not just nutrients, you know, like a Myers cocktail or a vitamin, you know, mineral nutrient thing, but also using IV ALA has to be used individually, alpha lipoic acid. Um, And then that I've seen patients hair go from gray to to dark again after really? using IV ALA and pulled like rotated in with um, IV vitamin C and nutrients. It's amazing. I think and for patients, do it. Yeah. I don't have any mold issues right now, but it just, I'd like to get my hair a little darker. So it'd be yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> IV is a nice way to get that, get that ALA. <laughs> All right. I'll have to keep that in mind. Um, yeah. And glutathione, of course, for the really brain fog patients, IV glutathione is amazing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. those are great points. Uh, You you threw it out. So I just want to ask you quickly, too. So fish oils you like, um, any particular brand that you find? Because I know there's always been a little controversy about whether they are contaminated. They say they're not. I know somebody in Florida who I do respect. He says none of them are safe. Other people, you know, and again, in the, the, you know, the mold uh, treatment area saying, look, we need this. So is there a particular mm-hmm. brand like Nordic Naturals or? Yep. Nordic like Naturals, Carlson's. Carlson's. Yep. Those are usually yep. pretty respectable brands. Yeah. You. Okay. And, and then uh, there are um, like Designs for Health has one that's in a form and that's a doctor only brand. So it doesn't help anybody who's listening, but you can talk with your doctor about it. That's in the triglyceride form. Mm-hmm. Um, Nordic Naturals has a couple of triglyceride forms as well. Multic people tend to need that form because the bile is so gunked up with mycotoxins that absorption site, we might think of it is um, compromised. And so they're going to need it in the most absorbable form, which is more like a sugar form, like a triglyceride versus the. Oh, is that what you mean by triglyceride form? I wasn't sure what that means. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way that we, the way that oils exist in nature. So it's like, literally, if you took a raw fish, which probably doesn't sound very good to anybody, although I like sushi. So when you're eating sushi, you're getting that fish oil in its more natural form, which is higher in triglycerides. Mm -hmm. So design for brands, that's through a medical doctor. Um, Designs for health. health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Nordic Naturals also has a, um, a they they call it emulsified form. Ah, okay. Yeah. Emulsified form. Okay, and that would be for all your fat soluble nutrients. That's why I'm a big fan of liposomal vitamin D, liposomal vitamin A, um, tocotrienols, if you're going for the mm-hmm. E, um, CoQ10 being emulsified, because when you're mold sick, those absorptive, that pathway is just really gummed up and they need a, they need a workaround. We kind of have to digest it for them a little. Okay. That, that, these are great tips. Uh, one of the quick questions that I get all the time and I, this is my answer to patients. Um, it's a frustrating answer that, you know, cause they always say, what's the best probiotic to take? And I say to okay. them, you know, there's so much research going on. I mean, there are obviously a lot of good probiotics. Some of them were of questionable benefit, maybe in the next five to 10 years, hopefully medicine, instead of coming to see your doctor and getting an antibiotic, you'll be getting a probiotic. I, I could see right. that happening. Right. But for right now, do you have a particular for mold toxic patients or candid patients, which I see a lot of, I mean, is it the VSL number three? I know that Dr. Nathan mentions about the one that just really has Saccharomyces boulardii uh, to push out the candida of the yeast. What, what's your uh, suggestion on that? Yeah, so for for my patients who are normal, not mold affected, and they get put on an antibiotic, that's when I use Saccharomyces boulardii because there's a, a start and a stop. 
and it's short term. Oh. Antibiotics oh. are technically mycotoxins. Many of them are mycotoxins. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, if we want to think about that penicillin is from penicillium species mold, and it's the mycotoxin from the mold. Right. So that's right. a start and a stop. And Saccharomyces then goes in and reorders things. Okay. But in a water damage building exposure that that has been long standing, and colonization is basically when the message has come in so much from the air that fungus is trying to come in and, and move in. You know, yeah. mold wants to compost you. That's right. it's just trying to do its job. Right. So when we have that, I don't use Saccharomyces boulardii. I tried with my patients ages ago, and because it works really well in studies, there are great studies on it. But those animals are on restricted diets. They get fed something. In my patient base, and Dr. Nathan and I talk about this all the time, that we we attract certain patients. You know, each of us are seeing a different patient load. Right, right. Um, in my patients, when I added Saccharomyces boulardii. They got sugar cravings, they got sweet cravings, and their neurological symptoms got worse. Oh, wow. So, it, you know, more urinary frequency, more ear ringing. And I thought, what in the world? This is supposed to be helping the fungal burden. Mm. And I realized what it's doing is it's adding to the overall fungal burden of the body. Mm. So for my the way that I practice, which is different than how Dr. Nathan practices, okay. I don't use Saccharomyces boulardii for mold sick patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as which probiotic for mold, I'm finding that the spore-based bacillus probiotics like Megaspore from Microbiome Labs, Mm -hmm. that is working the best because it's not trying to repopulate anything. It's trying to rebalance the milieu. Okay. That can cause quite a bit of um, die-off symptoms in people. I'm going to get to that for one second. Yeah, yeah, I start with, and people don't believe me when I tell them this, but I start with one capsule that we try to sprinkle over food for the first two weeks, Mm. like two weeks to get through your first capsule, one week to get through the second capsule, half a week to get through the next capsule. And then you can go to dailies and then they don't have as much um, flair. So, okay. So with the, the, the megaspore, is is it, is it like several capsules a day? Is that typically like with meals or something? Usually I just do one a day that people just need. Yeah. It's just a rebalancer. Okay. Mm-hmm. The microbiome oh. labs, people would say they need more, but do you ever use like a line or VSL number three, the ones that sure, are pretty Sure. Standard? Yeah. And the histamine okay ones. Too. Yeah. Like seeking health has one called histamine probiotic histamine X that I will combine a spore based probiotic that they maybe take in the morning. And then that they take the probiotic histamine X at another time of day. They can both be taken at the same time of day because they're working differently. The, the, other probiotics other than spore-based are trying to repopulate, put in things that we want in there. The spore-based just move through. You literally flush them out, but it's their effect on the milieu as they travel through that mm. makes the biggest difference. Yeah, that's right. It's the environment. Mm. Um, and you yeah. should tell patients to take this with food. Is that how it's best done? Or Spore it- can be done anytime. It doesn't have no, to be refrigerated. It's no. so flexible. Oh, that's that's the other way I, reason I like it. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to, we're going to get to the last section as we're winding down this amazing conversation, the fight section. And yes. I'm just curious, um, and this is going to kind of bring up the die-off, you know, because there's obviously a lot of ways die-off can occur. But, you know, the Dr. Schumacher popularized cholestyramine. That was his big gun. He also mentioned Wellcore, which I think he didn't like as much, but very few people tolerate the cholestyramine. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Brewer Again, with his big guns, he emphasized again in one of his lectures that itraconazole, you know, mm-hmm. really way over mm-hmm. diflucan, which are both antifungals, because he mm-hmm. says he knows the difference, what's really going to work against mold. So I was just curious, um, 
when you go to quote the big guns, do you wait a while for this to all settle in? What you've you know all the things you prepared to this point, uh, and when do you feel that you need to use it, and which ones do you like to use? That is kind of the art of medicine. For some people, I will go right to the itraconazole. And so if they have a lot of fungal infection, so they either have um, toenail fungus, um, athlete's foot that's keeping them up all night, jock itch is keeping them up all night, you know, that's a time to just go for the big gun and let's get the help, you know. Um, typically, though, what I try to do is start with the plants because a lot of those drugs have resistance issues. Mm -hmm. And so if we have the plants on board, they can win the fight all on their own, but also they can, we can then add the pharmaceutical and now you have combated the resistance issue and you have the antifungal effect. So with the big guns, as you were talking about, you know, we said Dr. Um, Schumacher likes the cholesterol, the well call, Dr. Nathan, well, Dr. Brewer likes the itraconazole. And you'll, you'll, will you do it like every day or you do it like once or twice a week with like alternating with nystatin? I was just curious, your your sort of protocols obviously could depend on the patient, but to try to eradicate yeah. or bring the balance of the of the whole microbiome. Um, yeah, that's a good question because a lot of people in the Lyme world, they do pulsing. So they would do it, you know, one to two times a week or that kind of thing. But when we look at the pharmacokinetics of itraconazole, we lose a lot in the first pass liver. So the first, what is that? Liver yeah. first pass. Yeah. yeah the first pass, first pass effect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me, if I'm going to be using it, I do a loading dose. I'd like to start with having um, the herb thyme on board uh, because thyme knocks down fungus's ability to fight back with more mycotoxins. When you say thyme, so, do you mean like like actually like literally the herb. sprinkling the herb? Yeah. Sprinking the herb or you can just yeah. sprinkle it on your food. Absolutely. I, that. I do that with ginger and everything. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can take it as a capsule. It's not so great as a tea. It's a little tingly as a tea, mm -hmm. but um, you can, as long as that is on board and that can, that can just be like three to four days um, that we really focus on time. It will shut down the mold's ability to make mycotoxins to defend itself when the drug comes on board. Oh, wow. So then people have less symptoms mm -hmm. and then we add the itraconazole and I'll do a loading dose of twice a day, like a hundred milligrams twice a day for like four to seven days so that we can get past that first pass effect. And some patients might need to be on it for 30 days. Yeah, okay. That's, you know, not unusual with these mm -hmm. really sensitive patients and the people have been really affected by the mold, mm. um, like a big exposure. Okay. Yeah. My last Sorry question. About the dog in the background. <laughs> My last question, because I really take up a lot of your time, but this is also such a common question that I get, and I've seen it in my own practice, which really opened my eyes, is what's called the die-off, or in classical medical terms, the Herxheimer reaction, which was named after uh, two dermatologists, I believe, in Austria, uh, when they were giving uh, penis intramuscular penicillin injections for syphilis. And they would see that within like 48 hours, the patients were extremely sick. <laughs> they were breaking out with rashes all over the place. And now this term I, I find is used more frequently for patients that I see with, that I treat for candida overgrowth or hypersensitivity, and again with moles. So, just curious, what your uh, I know you mentioned this a little bit in the book. I like some of the ideas, but how you handle a patient's die-off reaction, you know, and it was you know because again we can never predict, unfortunately, who's going to be uh, at risk. So what's what's your approach? And someone calls up and says, Dr. Krista, I'm feeling worse. You started me on these antifungals. I'm doing everything you said. I can't get out of bed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What do you, how do you handle their quote die off reaction? 
Yeah. I mean, the first, the first question always is, do we, do we take a treatment break or do we cut the dose in half or, you know, is it something that's just, I have a, a statement in my book that if it's too hard, it's too hard, you right. know, like your body can only do so much. Right. So when people say, oh, I've been herxing for seven days, I'm like, no, 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 no. A herx right. is a 48 to 72 hour situation, you know? Yeah. So, right. um, so it may be that we halt treatment and that doesn't mean you're going backwards. Right. It just means we're listening to your body and you can start treatment again when you feel better. Right. Cause you know, people always ask, you know, it's like, uh, like, you know, they think, Oh no pain, no gain. No, no, we don't want, we don't want pain. It's going to be less gain. Right. Cause okay. if you're in pain, so is your liver and so are your right. kidneys and so right. is your brain. Like there are, there are body tissues that we're trying to protect. Um, and then I love, I learned this from patients, um, muddled lime, fresh lime, muddled and drinking that juice. It's just what, amazing. What do you call it? Muddled? Is it just yeah. squeezing? Yeah. So what just you like muddled? you would do, you oh, like you smash it and squeeze it. Cause oh, oh, I think that gets the, the bioflavonoids out. Yeah. yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So not just juice, but like where you, you actually the injure the, yeah, you get that pulp. Ah, yeah. Right. Like the second layer of the orange, interestingly enough, I could have said peel the lime and it would have made more sense. Yeah. I like that <laughs> one. Uh, you know what I like a lot too? Cause I was love that you mentioned this and this I learned 30 years ago from a very interesting allergy doctor, but it was probably one of the original environmental doctors, Doris Rapp. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. I, I actually got yeah. to spend a, like a few days as a very young doctor watching her clinic in Buffalo. It was amazing what she was doing with food allergy patients. But she used to mention about what's called Alka-Seltzer Gold. And what's yes. special about Alka-Seltzer Gold, just for listeners, because I recommend this all the time to my patients with severe food allergies. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, what? And I'll say, well, it's very interesting. Alka-Seltzer Gold is, you know, today the regular alka-seltzer have aspirin and God knows what else in it, caffeine, right. you know, to help you for a hangover. This particular product, or you could just get sodium bicarbonate tablets or use good old baking soda. Yep. It's very interesting. You know, I use it um, because what it's been found, it changes the body's pH and stabilizes the mast cells. So I tell patients who I know have known dangerous food allergies, okay, you're going to a wedding, you're going to a party, you don't know what's mm -hmm. going to be. I know you're going to try to be careful, but take two of these tablets before you go. And Great at least we're gonna, tip. Right, so we bring down the temperature of, God forbid, how explosive a reaction might be. So I was like, I love when I see that you mentioned, that you also feel it helps for the die-off reactions? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll do it before an antifungal um, bout, like their first antifungal, just really? because I think, okay, this is Great. just gonna, that's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that about the mast cell stabilization. That makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I gotta tell you something. You know, again, yeah. I'm sure like yourself, I was seeing, in the last two years, so many people with also the mast cell quote activation syndrome, mm -hmm. and they're so frustrated. There's really very few treatments really that are substantiated. But one of the things, believe it or not, they're definitely finding that making the body more alkaline, especially mm -hmm. even the gut, uh, definitely. And I, I, I've, I've seen papers even in the allergy literature where it's actually brought down or blocked an anaphylactic reaction, you know, in a known patient. So again, not, you should still have your EpiPens, but to yeah, have a little right. more <laughs> combined, it's, uh, it's a good thing to know. So, yeah. and, and what about also the Epsom salt baths? What, is, what does that do? I know magnesium is good, but what, what do you find? How does that help the die off in your- There's that sulfur thing again. You know, sulfur oh. is a mover. It's a mover. It's a, if you think about a volcano, it smells like, you know, that's what the stinky foods oh. kind of smells like a volcano. That's that nutrient that will help mobilize and move things that are stuck. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. I hope my listeners appreciate 
this time as much as I have. This was a master class with Dr. <laughs> Jill Christer. And I know doctors, including myself, pay good money. I may have to take a couple more of her courses to learn her tricks of the trade. Um, she has a new book coming out, which I can't wait to read. And I hope she'll come back on the podcast called A Light in the Dark, where she talks about uh, the pandas. Uh, which is a syndrome. I'm not that familiar with it, but I, I'm hoping by the time I finish her book, reading it a few times, I'll have a lot of good questions to ask her. Uh, Dr. Jill, where can patients find out more about your work? I know also on your website, I've been recommending patients go there now to even get supplements because I trust your selection. So where can they go to find out more about what you're doing and, and your work? Yes, thank you. It's drkrista.com, D-R-C-R-I-S-T-A.com. I have a about four plus years of video blogs there that are done nice, short, digestible for mold brain people. Um, and then I have a, a gift for everybody. There's a, a guided visualization. It's absolutely free. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Clarity Pep Talk. And it's for those of you that are listening that have been mold sick, you know, you're mold sick and you keep finding mold. This is a way to bump you off molds frequency. No more attraction to mold. Get off the coherence with mold um, and, and, start to get yourself into safe spaces because the environment is so important. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was terrific information, advice. I hope all of my listeners enjoy this and look forward to hopefully my next conversation in the near future with Dr. Jill Krista.